Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'm joined by Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania. Hey, Kevin. We have a lot to get to. Uh, we're doing this recording on Friday, March 15th for you all. It's going to be a discussion episode, and uh, we've got a couple main topics to get to, but we also have some things to get to from people who are our patrons and suggested some topics or questions that we might be able to briefly address or maybe consider for future shows. So uh, we have that, but there's also this tragedy that's unfolding, which we probably should spend a few minutes uh, just mentioning, or I, and it, it's done unfolding. There was a massacre at, the, at these mosques in New Zealand in Christchurch, which I've actually visited, but uh, it's just horrible, um, and it's a right-wing terrorist act. Yeah, and uh, there was like a manifesto that apparently the suspected killer. I think there was more than one killer, but the one who like live streamed it. This is a fucking crazy story. Um, Brenton something. I can't remember his name. I don't really care. But the main killer, uh, whose uh, name has been out there, apparently live streamed the massacre, which is so fucking like that's so terrifying. And he killed like 40, they killed 49 people um, at these two mosques during Friday prayers, which is when you're likely to find the most people because Friday prayers are like the biggest, it's like the Sunday for church, but for Muslims. Um, And it's just awful. The guy, I was reading his manifesto. I don't know if you got a chance to, but I'm always interested to see what drives these people. And what's really scary about this situation is the guy in his manifesto says that like he was inspired by Anders Breivik, the uh, Norway, the Norwegian terrorist who uh, I think killed like 77 people several years ago um, in like a shooting massacre of what he believed to be like left wingers who were helping the white genocide of Europeans. And this guy, his whole manifesto was just like obsessed with the idea of white genocide. He also says that he's, he says Donald Trump he described him, describes him as like a leader of the resurgent white identity. Um, and he goes after, I mean, it's just, what's interesting to me is he attacked Muslims, he said, because they're the most emblematic of these brown people with high rates of fertility that are bringing about white genocide. He was also inspired by Dylan Roof, who committed the act of terrorism against the people, against the black church. Um, like two years ago, I think at this point. Anyways, it's just all really scary because it just shows how transnational this far right violent resurgence is. And these people are like, um, each time there's like a killing, it it ends up, you know, getting these people excited and then somebody else starts planning it. Apparently this guy was planning this for like two years. And he sees this as like a battle, a war of civilizations. So it's a really scary situation when this kind of stuff happens. And in New Zealand of all places, which you've been to, Kevin, and you've talked about on the show as being like a really cool, peaceful place um, that's full of diversity. And what I thought was interesting, too, is the guys of Australian nationality. And he was going on about like the brown invaders. And, um, and I'm just like, do you think yeah. you're indigenous to Australia? Like, what the fuck is wrong with you, dude? No, I mean, Australia's terrible for the racism against indigenous aborigines. And it's just, you know, there's there's so many discussions. I'm not saying that there... So in New Zealand, there's the history with the Maori indigenous people that isn't anything to boast about. It's, it, it, there's, it's a definite blemish on New Zealand's... But what uh, you described but, from yeah. your visit there was that New Zealand has definitely addressed that in a much different way than Australia, which continues to, like treat these people like shit and isolate them. The Aboriginal people in Australia. There are liberals nice. that are trying. I'll say that. That's That was my message was that while they still struggle in poverty and um, there's there's some good stuff out there about that, if anybody's interested, I, I, I don't think Australia has done anything similar. What I thought was really interesting was the response of, I believe, the prime, who's the prime minister of New Zealand? She's a woman. I don't remember yeah. her name. I'm sorry, I'm blanking out on her name. I can go check real quick, but she uh, made a statement. You can see it on video, and I think it was a really good statement. And she just condemns it as an act of terrorism and says these people have no place in New Zealand, and she rejects their entire ideology. I just really liked her statement because typically when you see these right-wing um, acts of terrorism from white supremacists, you don't get the kind of unequivocal response from a leader that you saw from this woman. I really liked it. 
Um, but the point is, is that this is just like, it's a global phenomenon in the West. Although I, I kind of cringe at calling Australia and New Zealand the West because they're not exactly in the West. They're kind of in the global South. Um, but you know what I mean by that. Uh, and also the guy cited Candace Owens, interestingly enough, as one of the greatest inspirations for him, but also the internet. I mean, this is just like the white supremacist version of an ISIS person is what this is. Um, and it's horrifying. It's really, really horrifying. I can't imagine how Mus like Muslims in Western countries feel seeing this each time it happens. Um, and in a place like New Zealand, like that's kind of like known for being like a, you know, peaceful, it's like the happiest place in the world, I think, like in one of the healthiest. And it's just really um, shocking to see that. And even people in Lebanon, like I go to a CrossFit gym in Lebanon and there's like a CrossFit group and people I go to CrossFit with aren't that political, but they were even like, oh my God, this, like in my CrossFit group on WhatsApp, suddenly they were talking about this and they were like, this is so horrifying. So when this kind of stuff happens, it touches everyone, even in different parts of the world. Um, and it's just really awful how like the leader of our country, Donald Trump, is being cited by this guy as like a symbol of white identity. <laughs> yeah, it's a very real example of the uh, influence that he's having as a figurehead for the United States, that he's actually inspiring these other right wing nationalist movements globally, which we, we knew he was already tapping into that uh, and was basically the next sort of success for this global movement in addition to other places like in Hungary and, and other countries. There's something I want to say about this, by the way, and I don't feel like it's appropriate to tweet because people are going to misconstrue it, but I can articulate it better when I'm speaking in a format like this. Um, I'm not justifying this guy's views and his racism and his hatred, but part of what has fueled this far right resurgent belief and the idea of like white genocide and these brown invaders is the flood of refugees from war-torn countries, um, which should be absolutely welcomed into um, wealthier nations, especially the ones that are responsible for those wars. New Zealand is not one of them. But my point is, is that I really think at some point we need to be able to have that conversation about um, the fact that our, our the Western war for like foreign policy that's pro-war that has caused, um, and this is kind of maybe going into something that we're about to talk, that we're going to be talking about on today's show, but these like Western regime change wars or regime change policies, not just wars that have destroyed countries in, whether it's Latin America or, um, in the Middle East, um, that have destroyed these countries have caused this like refugee migration, um, that is often used by this resurgent far right to justify their claims and to actually help radicalize idiots. Um, <laughs> and the reason I say that is because I do think that when we see these kinds of far right massacres, we need to talk about how our foreign policy plays into that. And it's not just me beating the foreign policy drum because it's all I like to talk about. And I know I'm always talking about the regime change stuff, but it's because I think it's so crucial to all of the rest of our politics, even domestically. There's no really good segue away from this terrible massacre, but before we get into the main topics, I wanted to highlight some of the, the suggestions and or uh, comments that we got from people for things they wanted to have us talk about. These are from our patrons who we're really happy to have as monthly supporters of the show. You all make it possible. Uh, so Joseph mentioned that uh, he's interested in the Red for Ed movement or these teacher strikes, and in particular, the fight back against charter schools that is ongoing. And uh, I think that that's probably, there's probably a guest we should have on our show in the next month or two here. At some point, we should probably talk to somebody who's been involved in this critical organizing around public education in the United States. But these teacher strikes... I, I can't say anything more than the fact that they've been truly inspiring in the sense that thousands of teachers are going out in the streets um, striking. Usually they're rank and file who might be defying their leadership, their union leadership, who's working with the government to negotiate contracts. And, and they decide that they're not going to settle for sacrificing people uh, they're going to stand up for their students. And we've seen in Oakland a victory. 
with uh, their wages going up. We've seen in places that you wouldn't expect, like West Virginia and even Arizona, these uh, states that are considered red states, we've seen teachers actually make gains there for themselves and for students. And I don't know, I think generally speaking, it's a really nice counterbalance to the destructive Donald Trump administration to have all of these people going out there. There's, there's really no other social movement out in the streets that's comparable to what they're doing at the moment. Yeah, you know, this is like a good time. I actually want to mention that I have a, a, a mini documentary coming out hopefully next month. Uh, months ago, I did, I went to film it in D.C. I spoke to teachers in D.C. who worked like more than, uh, who worked like a second or third job. Um, and what was really striking to me is I couldn't find a teacher who didn't have a second job. Like it's it's a scandal how underpaid wow. teachers in America, public school teachers in America are, um, in cities with a lot of money, um, and then other cities that don't maybe don't have as much money or like states that don't have as much money. But I'm it's it's really exciting to see this, and part of it is because um, these people are really really suffering. It's really difficult for them to make a living as teachers without working a second job. It's really difficult for them. It's exhausting with all the budget cuts that oftentimes they're not just working as teachers. They're also working as like social workers. Um, they're stu- they have like 35 students in their classes when teachers used like 20 years ago had 15. Um, and it's a lot to deal with. Uh, and all of the, and especially in poorer urban areas, a lot of the teachers who work in schools uh, with like underprivileged kids uh, end up like dealing with a lot of the social problems that the kids bring into the school. So like, like in DC, there's an issue of homelessness in DC that's really like severe. And so the teacher I was speaking to from one school was like going on about how like a significant portion of her students are homeless. And so they're coming into school tired. They haven't eaten. They, there's like all kinds of other things that teachers are dealing with besides just teaching. And it's exhausting for them. And it's happening all around the country. So this activism is stemming from also from that so it is really, really exciting to see people taking like collective action the way that teachers have been. And one of the things in D.C. is I asked, you know, how do you feel about the recent teacher strikes? Because at this point, there'd been these strikes in uh, West Virginia. And where was the other one? There was another teacher strike um, in a different part of the country. I can't remember which state. But regardless, I was like, how do you feel about this? And they were so inspired by it. It's something that their union in D.C. doesn't allow them to do. Because um, like you said, oftentimes the unions are sort of like in bed with the people in power who are like trying to um, take away from teachers salaries and benefits. So anyway, I'm really glad you mentioned that because it makes me happy to hear that just because like I, you know, having actually talked to some of these people who like they're, it's really, really difficult what they do. And it's like, I think some of the most important work in the country is to be a teacher. Yeah. And I, I, I just must add because I, I don't want to always talk about Chicago, but I don't think every episode I, I invoke Chicago. But uh, the Chicago Teachers Union have been on the front lines of this struggle. They were, you know, it had been something around 20 or 25 years since there had been a teacher strike in Chicago. And this was back in the early 2010s here that they went on strike under Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And I think this whole thing with charter schools, the the sort of attacks that have been on public education as a result of a turn towards this private education, this privatization. One of the things that's been really stark in Chicago is how you have these schools that were shut down. We mentioned last week that there was a time when around 50 or so schools were shut down in Chicago. And so those buildings, many of them are still shuttered. They just sit there. They're empty buildings. There's nothing being done with them. They're just in disrepair as they fall apart with no students or teachers. And now, of all things, in the dystopian world that we sometimes find ourselves in, a mayoral candidate who she's likely to win, her name's Lori Lightfoot. I have to mention this on this show and in this context. She has proposed that perhaps these schools that were closed, Rania, become little mini police training academies. You're kidding me. (laughs) Which is like, one, it takes the attacks on public education from these charter school people to an insane level of... It's like, let's turn our decrepit schools into 
tools to help reinforce and expand the police state. Yeah. So like what happens is the city consciously does not invest in a public school. The public school is then in failure. The public school then is laying off teachers. The public school then decides that they're going to shut down. The neighborhood no longer has that public school. People in that neighborhood go have to find another school farther away. Then you have like gangs mixing or you have factions of people mixing that don't like each other and there's violence. Um, and then the violence is created. And then, of course, I guess now in violent neighborhoods or in places where there's crime, you're just going to have little mini academies that pop up. It's so like it's that's like talk- some, I mean, dystopian was the right word. That was like the perfect word I, to use. I feel like that's like the basis for a science fiction novel that could be really popular. Like it could be the next Hunger Games or something. It's like that's like some weird social experiment gone terribly unethical, like. I mean, it's like, that's, that sounds worse than, or as bad as when they turn a school into a jail. So like, let's try. But no, but what you just described is so true. That was the whole pattern of like events is, um, you know, you defund schools, then the schools start to do poorly, obvious or obvious reasons. And then you blame the teachers and you say, okay, we got to cut these teachers. These are, we being bad. Remember there was like a whole movement to blame bad Apple teachers and we had yeah, to make yeah. it easier. To, we got to make it easier to fire teachers. Um, and Obama was like totally behind all that too. I mean, he like had the race to the top. Yeah, because was like this. His secretary of dog. education was Arnie Duncan, Arnie and Duncan, came yeah. came from Chicago, who was instrumental in pushing charter schools. So yeah. let me so let me go on to. Uh, I don't know that we really want to spend a whole lot of time. It got. A I lot- know we get into these tangents, but we just get so fired up. <laughs> it's fine. Um, uh, on this coming topic, I don't know that we want to say a whole lot. There's a lot that's been out there and we probably don't need to fill um, any space with a lot of our thoughts, but um, Teet Skerget uh, has this thing of uh, the recent college admissions scandal might be an interesting subject to tackle, particularly as a starting point for discussing the current state of U.S. higher education. I mean, like, the only takeaway for me is just, like, it's a very, like, real example of the way in which rich people can game the system. And that's the case all throughout the United States. Yeah, it just sort of confirmed to me that it's actually everything that we think happens, happens. I think at some point this might be a good a good opportunity to maybe have somebody, because you know the issue of higher education is a serious one. The issue of student debt is a serious one. The issue of like lack of access to higher education all of that, I mean, that's that's all very important and, like, the sort of corruption that takes place in higher education. Um, maybe it would be good to have somebody on the show who can talk as, like, an expert about that kind of stuff. Because I don't think we ever really address those sort of things, and we should. That's, like, a hole in our show. I mean, the thing with, like, affordability of going to college, mm-hmm. it's true, and, you know... And I, mean, I like how Meghan McCain once again became the talk of, the talk of like... <laughs> the, or, like, the, <laughs> the target of... of um, of jokes because of her of her behavior on this where she was just like what was she saying she was like oh she was like in bed admissions um and about legacies and she was like legacy admissions are a good thing and we shouldn't stop them just because of this that was some something i mean that's probably what she said pretty much <laughs> but i love how like first she was like I'm not Jewish, but I feel what Ilhan Omar said was anti-Semitic because I'm Meghan McCain. And Ilhan Omar, a refugee with a hijab and black skin, scares me. I love how she said Ilhan Omar scares her. I feel like it's a very American concept that rich people should get more free shit. Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, it totally... Well, I mean, we live in the world where Amazon's paying zero in federal taxes. It's like... Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, so... I mean, there is this thing of like, hey, if you're rich and you have money, we should be paying you to like give us jobs. Like that's yeah, basically. And cities across the country, oftentimes that's the case. It's like you lower your state tax rate so that you can attract businesses. Um, or it's the same for people who buy first class tickets. If you have a first class ticket, you get this first class lounge where all the alcohol is free, where all the food is free. And it's like top notch stuff like it's like you get the more the richer you are, the more free shit you get. It's kind of amazing. It's like when people go to rich, fancy events, the stuff in their gift bag is like iPads, <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right. So um, Tarek had a question 
which probably ha is an issue that has terrified you because you do a lot of flying. Um, do you have anything uh, on why these Boeing 737s weren't taken down sooner so that people wouldn't die in plane crash? So this made me so angry. As I've talked about on the show before, I struggle with this anxiety I have when it comes to flying as it is. Um, and I've sort of like figured out ways to manage that through alcohol and, uh, and, uh, anti-anxiety medicine when I fly. <laughs> Do those um, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't drink that. It's not like I'm like downing bottle after bottle. I'm a, I'm pretty much, I'm a lightweight. So like one glass of wine calms me down. Um, but anyways, the point is, is, uh, oh, this, this outraged me. Um, I was actually traveling earlier this week. Um, and I had to fly back to Beirut and I was like, this is before, this is like after the crash had happened and they were saying something is wrong with these planes specifically. This is for before, like anyone had grounded them. And so I immediately went to check to make sure the plane I was scheduled to go on in a few days, like, wasn't a, is it a 787? Um, it might, it might be a 737. I don't really know the difference, but my point is, is I was like freaking out, but what made me so angry is I think that this is really like emblematic of all the corruption uh, in the U.S. that exists when it comes like corporate government collusion and negligence um, and putting profits over people uh, because every single country, you know, from China to India, everybody, I think like Canada was the last like holdout was like, we're grounding these planes. And it became increasingly clear after uh, I think Dallas News had spoken to pilots or had looked through transcripts or of um, pilots basically like making complaints about this plane and many, there had been at least like five, um, official filed complaints with one captain even calling it like criminal negligence that, that, that Boeing wasn't warning the pilots about the system and how bad this like system was. Um, and this is after there was a first plane crash back in October of the same plane for a different airline, I think in Indonesia, uh, Basically, these people didn't need to die. This wasn't like, you know, there's some, you know, every, every, it's like terrifying, but every once in a while, there's things you can't help, like, like a flock of birds flies into an engine, um, or like something really mechanical that couldn't be foreseen uh, goes disastrously wrong, and a plane goes down. And it's really scary for anybody who flies often to even think about that. But in this case, it wasn't that kind of situation. It was like Boeing knew there was a flaw. It didn't even alert pilots. And then after two planes crashed, Boeing lobbied the government. Um, and literally the CEO of Boeing called Donald Trump to reassure him that he shouldn't ground the planes. And Donald Trump's such an idiot, he listened. And also at the same time, the Donald Trump administration has been hollowing out the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, so like, there's not anybody really in charge of it right now, except for like an interim person. There's all these positions in it that haven't been filled. Uh, he attempted to, with Republicans, to try and like cut staff from this group and then also tried to um, privatize air traffic control, which would have reduced air traffic control by 80%, uh, which are people who literally work to make sure planes don't fucking crash into each other in the air. Um, so anyways, this is all, all this to say, like I, as somebody who's anxious about flying as it is, this pissed me off so much, but it made me even angrier because over 150 people died. And that was just in one flight. There was another flight. All of it was preventable. And it was all because of fucking like corporate corruption and negligence and government collusion to make that happen. The timeline is so critical here because the Indonesia crash happened in October. And according to the, these news reports, they were supposed to change and make some update to this, this plane. But it was delayed by five weeks because of the government shutdown. So the U.S. regulators weren't going to approve or mandate or say that everything was set until April. It was going to take that long for everything to be fixed. But meanwhile, Boeing um, and these airlines, this model, which is the 737 MAX, uh, was still in use. And so, yeah, these people died because of corporate power and because of total negligence and lack of regulation by the United States government. It's just, I mean, the blood is literally on the hands. And also, when you put it in the context of the government shutdown, the reason why we shut down the government 
was so that Donald Trump could get a wall. But Donald Trump never got money for the wall. He didn't move any politicians to get any legislation that had money for, for a wall. Uh, when he reopened the government weeks later, um, uh, actually, I think it was more than a month later, it, uh, he, he had the same bill that he had before the government was shut down. So anyways, all of these people died because Donald Trump wants to block immigrants from the United States. Yeah, that's actually a really good way to say it. And you're absolutely right. And I think this, like, again, I think this is really emblematic of the decline of America in so many ways. Um, because in this situation, what you had was, you know, the FAA is often apparently looked to internationally as like a good regulation body, like as a good regulating body. It can take its word about like the safety of this or that plane or this or that airline. Um, and this was a situation where the whole world was like, okay, well, we don't trust the FAA in this situation. And of course, there was all these articles about how this is just a win for China and Russia. And I'm like, really? That's your takeaway from this? Um, but in a sense, like it was like China was more responsible here. They were the first country, I believe, to ground all their planes or all these planes and, and ban them from their airspace. And then slowly other countries followed suit after more and more information came out, making it very clear that this was completely preventable and could be pinned on Boeing itself and the U.S. government um, I also, for its negligence. I also, just very quickly, I was saddened to see, um, although I think it was nice to have his voice out there in the, media, in, in the media, but I was saddened to see that Ralph Nader lost his grandniece on this airplane, that, um, that she had died, and I was saddened to learn that many of the people, because she was involved in like aid work in... Uh, this part in in countries um, and like, yeah, there was Ethiopia. a bunch of there was a bunch of NGO workers who were going to like a conference, like an aid humanitarian aid conference. Yeah. So there was people from like a bunch of different aid organizations that do really good work. I mean, there's I don't know anybody. It was global who died, health and friends prevention. of mine who do. Yeah, and I don't know anybody who died, but there's friends of mine whose friends were on that flight going to that conference. And I mean, this was again, it was a very safe airline. It's like I think the best airline in Africa. Mm -hmm. It's one of the best, like the top airline, I think, Ethiopian airlines. Um, not that it's okay when like some shitty airline, you know, plane goes down, but it's just something that like, I think really shocked people the most is like, they were like, wait, what? And it was a brand new plane, you know, it wasn't like some airline that has old outdated planes that it hasn't like moder modernized its fleet. Well, I think so that's the thing that really sticks out is like when you're saying that is there were three airlines, Southwest, American and Air Canada who, as people were saying, ground these planes, they were saying, no, we're not going to halt these Boeing 737 flights. And it's like, well, look, even the most tip-top organizations that were doing the best sort of business and handling their airline well were not willing to take safety precautions. Well, I think that also goes into people over profits because I believe that their fleets were a good portion of them were um, Boeing 737s. So it actually yeah. would have cost them a lot more money than other airlines. Like a lot of European airlines or Asian airlines have more of a mix. They have a lot of Airbuses, yeah. which I believe is a European com uh, company. Um, so it's for them, if they ground a couple of their planes, it's not a huge deal in terms of profit loss. And also maybe they were maybe putting his actual safety over, I don't know, over money. I'm not sure. But with these flights, I think it was saying something like 20 or 30 or something of like Southwest planes or these planes. Um, so it's a huge loss in money for them. All right. So but that, again, that speaks to the corruption of like just a system where profit trumps everything. But you know what? Like, I think that this outraged people too, because flying is something that, um, that like everyone does, including rich people, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so for them, it's also like, well, wait, our safety's at stake here. Not just, you know, like this isn't some issue of like poisoning water in Flint, you know, this is an issue that could impact the rich, the elites as well. Yeah. John had a question. We probably can't, I know we can't do this question justice uh, right now, but it does raise the possibility of doing a show on the state of news media where we basically dig into some issues of journalism and, and not only talk about like state funded media, but talk about some of these like larger questions that exist. And for us, as we're trying to continue to have work and stay employed, et cetera. But uh, 
John asked, is it worthwhile to form a co-op for journalists owned and operated news? And uh, the only thing I can say to that very quickly is that there are it actually initiatives around there um, that involve um, finding a way to link journalists with each other, to have support for each other's work, to make it possible for them to improve their projects. Uh, there's something I like called uh, the M Membership Puzzle Project, which is involved in work around different organizations throughout not just the U.S. but other parts of the world and helping them develop so that they can not only have a better impact as an organization but also so that they can connect with people like our patrons and involve them and have like a community when they're doing their work. And I don't know if that even begins to answer a fairly complex question, but uh, that's my initial thought about like I know why he's asking that question because we've talked a lot about how it seems like media people are isolated and don't have any support for their work. Yeah, I pretty much think you said it all. Um, I agree with everything you just said. And I think we should maybe think about having a broader discussion about that for sure. But those uh, things do exist in a small capacity. That's uh, true. All right. So feeding into our conversation we wanted to get to about regime change, boosters, and foreign policy and, and, and some of the stuff that happened in the last week, in particular with CNN deciding that it was going to use Tulsi's presidential town hall, Tulsi Gabbard's presidential town hall to essentially, you know, go after her and make it harder for her to share her message about ending U.S. wars and interventions. I have this question for you. Uh, because mm -hmm. I think you, I think this person who is our is a patron has a nice question that can sort of open up a larger discussion here. So, um, Aike asks, "I'm repeating my question from last round. What do you think about the idea of open borders and the harsher immigration policies in Europe and the U.S.? Usually, this is disconnected from wider foreign policy debates. So, I'd like to hear your takes." And we were kind of getting into it with the massacre, and I think this is probably a, a thing to talk about. Well, I mean, I'm all for, like, open borders, um, like, theoretically. Like, I think everybody should be able to travel with, like, have, like, freedom of movement. Just like with an American passport, you can almost go almost anywhere except for countries that hate the U.S. that don't let you. But for the most part, you can go almost anywhere. Um, whereas, like, people with other passports can. And then, of course, like, people... The, the issue, though, my issue, though is in the kind of world that we live in, open borders is just not something that I, I maybe I'm wrong, maybe Kevin, you might disagree with me, but I don't think it's, a, it's something that you can practically, practically advocate for that will have mass appeal because there's too many xenophobes and bigots. And that doesn't say we have to appease xenophobes and bigots, but I feel like addressing or, or talking about open borders doesn't actually address the real issue at hand, which is I'm all for freedom of movement. But at the same time, what I think we should be talking about is why people are desperately trying to cross borders. And part of the reason they are is because of they're fleeing something. Like people from Honduras aren't like fleeing to America because they desperately want the American dream or something. It's they're fleeing violence from a destabilized society and government that the US helped destabilize by legitimizing a coup there in 2009. Um, that's just one example. That's kind of where I stand on that issue. I personally do support open borders. I just don't think in the atmosphere, the right-wing atmosphere of America, it's something that anyone can win on. Um, so I think the more proper way to go about this is to say, yes, of course, like people should have freedom of movement across borders, absolutely. Um, however, if we're going to address the situation of immigration, we need to go further and address the roots of immigration. Um, and why people are desperately fleeing this place or that place. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and I don't know if this is an easy way to get into uh, what was happening on CNN, but I think that you know one of the reasons why you could generate opposition to war is by pointing out these refugee crises, these, this, this issue with people crossing these borders uh, because a lot of these people 
I'd say, I, I don't, you could tell me I'm wrong, but I'm sure many of the thousands, sorry, the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who come from each particular country didn't want to leave that country. They would prefer to have been able to stay there. But when we take actions that make it harder for them to remain in those countries, then what are you going to do? You have to go find someplace else to live. Somewhere safe. People are looking for safety and stability. Yeah. And whether it's the U.S. destroying, not just always the U.S., but Others, in the case sure. of like our Latin American neighbors, um, whether it's the U.S. destroying them economically, as what ha- like what happened with Mexico. I mean, the U.S. NAFTA devastated Mexico, devastated Mexican workers, especially farmers. Um, put people out of work. They had, they had, people need to find work so they can feed their families. Um, and so, and also what happens here too is, is like the drain that happens to these countries isn't fair as well because oftentimes these countries end up having, experiencing what's called a brain drain because the people, the first people to leave are people who have good jobs or people who are skilled, doctors and lawyers and teachers and engineers. Those are the first people to go when the economy goes to shit or when a country goes to shit. It happened in Iraq. It happened in Syria. It happened in, um, it's happening in Venezuela right now. Venezuela's lost like tens, like a few, like I think 25,000 doctors. Um, that's what happens when you destroy an economy or destroy a country by trying to destabilize it. And so it's also a disservice to these countries as well. And then these people end up fleeing to the U.S. or something where, um, if they can, well, they end up like doing what? Picking tomatoes? Like, you know, these people who have, like, not, like, I'm not saying, you know, some, like, like a doctor is so much better than a tomato picker. They're both important jobs. But my point is, is like, people who have these skill sets end up not even being able to use them when they go to the U.S. Um, they end up working the jobs that people in the U.S. either think they're too good to work or because, like, they're cheaper labor, they end up, t- you know, working jobs um, that pay really cheap, you know? My point is, is like, we have to address all these issues. And I think Bernie Sanders does a pretty good job of that sometimes, but not always. Um, but at the same time, the only person addressing the sort of like regime change destabilization campaigns the U.S. Uh, launches is Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah. And so she had this presidential town hall that took place on March 10th. Um, it was part of South by Southwest. Uh, and, it, and it's amazing. Um, just generally, um, and then I'll, I, I want to actually read what Josh Rogan had to say and then get you to react because I think that'll be productive for our conversation. But I think it's amazing to me that they are reading all of these places seem to have the exact same script. I mean, have you noticed that like MSNBC asked the same questions, CNN asked the same questions, Stephen Colbert asked the same questions? Because the CNN town hall set her up. Yeah. Um, they set her up with this question of, do you believe Assad is a war criminal? And she didn't say no. She said there does appear to be evidence. And if he's going to be prosecuted as a war criminal, evidence that, that evidence should be presented. Her answer was something along the lines of that, which is not a denial of that's war crimes. This week's, do you think Assad is a dictator? Or do you think Assad... Right, but my point is, is like the script you're talking about is everybody took that response, which was a very reasonable response, that, of course, evidence should be presented... And he should be prosecuted. That was her response. It was evidence that war crimes have been committed should be presented and he should be prosecuted based on that evidence. That was her response. And but, it's like, you're right. Everyone was reading from the same script and was like, she denied all the headlines where Tulsi Gabbard refuses to call Assad a war criminal. But I think it goes even deeper because to me, it's that she has to adhere to a standard that nobody else has to simply because she doesn't support these regime change operations. So in order to talk about these subjects, she has to continuously denounce Bashar al-Assad or else she isn't allowed to have any opinions. It's not something like, like nobody's looking at Kamala Harris and asking her, do you think Assad is a war criminal? They, Mm -hmm. and so what I'm saying is, why don't we give Tulsi Gabbard the default that she thinks that, Assad is a war criminal? Yeah, there's a there's absolutely that's a really good point. There's a complete double standard here, and I would go even further and add that there's also a standard that's being applied to the issue of Syria that's not applied to anywhere else. Like no one's asking, well, do you think Mohammed bin Salman is a war is a war criminal? 
Right. Do you, like, do you think these American allies are war criminals? Do you think George W. Bush is a war criminal? Like, for doing a lot of the same things that you're saying Assad does? Like, it's, like, just applied to this country that the U.S. Um, is on a U.S. like, is enemy list. So let me um, read what uh, Josh Rogan said on air as part of CNN's effort to attack. Uh, and also, by the way, CNN did three town halls. They did them with candidates that are probably only going to get a small percentage of the vote. And uh, John Delaney was another one. And they did one with Pete Buttigieg, who, by the way, disqualified himself this week by saying that he doesn't think that Chelsea Manning should have had her sentence commuted. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, but... Uh, what came out of their all of their town halls was nothing constructive for any of the candidates. The thing that they pushed was this State Department propagandistic attack against Tulsi Gabbard around the, uh, her criticism of regime change wars. So Rogan said, um, actually, I have, to, I have to read you this question from Brianna Keelar, but I can't really do it in the voice that she does, which is sort of airheady. But uh, I could try. Uh, how do you see her looking at and talking about other dictators? Uh, is there something specific about Assad? I mean, how does she talk about authoritarian regimes in general? Uh, does she even condemn Vladimir Putin and others? Um, what the fuck? That was her question. That, that was that's incoherent nonsense. So Josh then said, Tulsi Gabbard comes from a place that in our politics that's uh, is, is found on both the left and the right that believes that sovereign nations should have power over their own territory, over their citizens, that we shouldn't be involved in these places. I think that's not so far from what Tr Donald Trump believes and what Bernie Sanders believes. A lot of Americans believe that. That's a legitimate foreign policy view. It doesn't happen to be one I agree with, but that's all fine. If we're going to have that discussion and we're going to say, okay, dictators can do whatever they want in their countries, we have to realize the cost of that. And the cost of that is what they want to do often is torture and murder their people. We have to be honest about that trade-off, okay? There's a reality, and the reality here is that when we look at a war crime or atrocity that's happening on our watch, and we look the other way, that's a signal to all of the other dictators, where, whether they're in Saudi Arabia, or you're in Iran, or you're in Russia, <laughs> or you're in North Korea, that it's open season. Oh my God. So there's so much wrong with what he said, and the yeah. first thing that immediately came to mind is what he's describing as like, there's this view on both the far left and the far right about uh, sovereignty. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's actually the view of international law. <laughs> yeah, well, we're not supposed that's to like just invade. That's like the view of the international community that like nations, like sovereign nations have control over their own territories. And this is, but this is part of a very insidious move by um, interventionists, both liberal and conservative over the past like, decade or some two decades maybe maybe three actually but more re in more recent decades they've pushed this really hard under the cover of humanitarian intervention to basically like decide that certain leaders don't have sovereignty anymore certain countries certain governments that are recognized as a legitimate government of this or that country um because of whatever acts they may have participated in or committed no longer have sovereignty um and as a result, the U.S. and the international community has the right to, like, basically strip them of that sovereignty and call them illegitimate. It's actually exactly what they're trying to do with Maduro right now. They're trying to say, this person, this government does not have sovereignty over Venezuela. The government that America and the European Union uh, have decided to recognize is now the new sovereign government, which is basically, like, it's a violation of international law and international norms. Uh, but it's also what they try to do with Syria. It's what they did with Libya. It's what they did with uh, Iraq. Um, with Yugoslavia, like you can go back. But the point is, is like that on its face is just like a lie, what he said, where that's just the view on the left and the right. It's like, no, that's like the international view, you dumbass. Right. This but, is like the responsibility to protect doctrine. This is like Samantha Power, right? Samantha Power, yeah, where she's like, we have to stop genocide. But one thing I really think that Tulsi Gabbard does well um, is. She explains, like, she kind of neutralizes this talking point by actually saying, okay, but if we look at where and when and where the U.S. has intervened, it's always made the lives of people even worse. And she's continued to, continued to hammer this point. She did it at her CNN town hall. And I'll tell you something. Um, Tulsi Gabbard, like, friends, the parents of a friend of mine, um, 
who were big Hillary supporters, were like blown away by Tulsi Gabbard's town hall. She totally won them over. And I was really shocked by that. I was like not expecting that at all. Well, that's good. Because I don't think any of these people um, have any interest in listening to Tulsi when they're interviewing her. But I do think that she comes off pretty well and that there are people who are seeing these clips who are probably impressed. Yeah, I mean, when she is given a platform and allowed to speak, like she was on Colbert and Colbert did the same thing. He said, you know, you, I've heard that you deny Assad, Assad Gass's own people. I've heard you deny he's a war criminal. And she, but she responds to it in like the same way every time. Like she's really on message about this whole like anti-regime change, anti-interventionist. And she even said something really important on Colbert where she said, look, I'm not an isolationist because I know that word scares a lot of people. She's like, I'm not an isolationist. I'm all about engaging with other countries. I just think we should have partnerships and like diplomatic partnerships and we should engage diplomatically uh, with other countries uh, in a way that helps everyone in a way that is like help security and peace. Um, she said it much more articulately than I just did. But my point is, is like when she is given a platform and I think they realized it this past week uh, after the CNN town hall is she does win people over. And so I think what you're going to see is it's going to go back to the way it was before where Tulsi was just like banished from everywhere and you never saw her or heard her speak. Because I don't want her to have a platform because once she's given one to actually say her piece, it's really, really uh, persuasive uh, to people who even like supported Hillary Clinton. Like that was wild to me. I was like, really? I just wasn't expecting that to be the response. All right. Well, uh, we're not done with this. Probably going to be. We're going to come back to it. There, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, are, there are many. More. Well, so it's it's funny. Josh Rogan actually found my piece and acknowledged it, and said something, uh, like, "I disagree with Kevin's arguments, but I'm glad that he gave space for uh, remarks uh, that I." gave so that there's an extended debate or something of like that nature and I responded to him because I was like well glad that you're willing to entertain debate as if like you get to decide what's up for debate or not I wonder if he was just happy that like you quoted him to a left-wing audience and he's like I bet once they see what I said they'll be convinced I'm right yeah, you know, when I did that, there were people who read my work who were then replying to him who are just, you know, the average person. And he had he wanted nothing to do with their criticisms, so he just blocked them. So I don't think huh. he's, I don't think he really wants to debate this issue. I think he just no. I think that I substantively engaged him in a way that puts him on the defense and he had to acknowledge that. And I also think these people are not used to ever having to have this debate because they, they're usually shielded from ever having to hear from our, our side. Yeah. And Tulsi Gabbard having a town hall and being on all these mainstream outlets changes that where they're forced to contend with what she's saying or to smear her. They have to go like one way or the other. Oftentimes they just end up smearing her um, because that's their only response because they don't have a good argument other than, but she loved dictators, you know? Um, Anyway, we have a few minutes here before we end. And I wanted to mention Chelsea Manning being in jail as as people who listen to the show may know. This is something I've covered for, uh, well, since she was in prison Um, and uh, she's in a jail. Uh, Ronnie, are you aware that she's in this place called the William Truesdale Adult Detention Center in Alexandria, Virginia? It's actually the same jail that's holding holding Paul Manafort and Maria Butina. Oh, wow. I did not know that. But I imagine, Kevin, I imagine that all those people who were really hysterical and upset, rightly so, I guess, that Jim Acosta of CNN had his um, his White House press credential revoked temporarily. Um, I imagine all those people are like out there holding up signs uh, to release Chelsea Manning to, you know, for the sake of journalism and press freedom. Right. Yeah. I have an excerpt from Rachel Maddow here that we're about to play. Uh, oh, sorry. I, <laughs> she didn't do one. Oh, damn! That was a good burn. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but what she did do is suggest through insinuation and her Glenn Beck style innuendo that 
the WikiLeaks grand jury might be zeroing in on something related to Russiagate, even though there's no reason why they would need to subpoena Chelsea Manning if that was what they were interested in. So, Well, unless Chelsea Manning isn't a Russian intelligence asset, just well, like everybody yeah. else that Rachel Maddow doesn't like. Well, you know, somehow people got to her while she was at Fort Leavenworth and don't, you know, I know that like all the different dots and arrows are going to be connected in Maddow's head and... Well, well, what's also upsetting here is, like, if this had happened in Russia, um, where, like, a whistleblower, or even, like, Pussy Riot yeah. was, like, detained for a couple days, all these people in the U.S. who don't care about Chelsea Manning, for obvious reasons, would be up in arms. Um, so there's just this massive double standard, but also Chelsea Manning is despised for doing what you're not supposed to do, which is leak America's dirty little criminal secret. Yeah, that's the main thing here. And we, 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 we have many who have asked, you know, why didn't Rachel Maddow do anything on Reality Winner? Uh, the answer is the same for Chelsea Manning. It's the sacrosanctness of classified information that makes someone like Rachel Maddow decide that they're not going to become sympathetic of like Chelsea Manning. Um, and of course, Chelsea Manning, these, these releases, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I think I'm going to do while she's in jail for this, which could be a very long time, um, could be a year, could be longer. We don't know how long this investigation is going to last. It's so secretive. Grand jury processes are highly secretive. Um, I could spend an entire show just going through. No, and they, they the can, thing. I mean, what Chelsea Manning's doing here, I don't think I would have the courage to do. Yeah. I mean, she's challenging the whole grand jury system, basically. Yeah. And, and, and there's a whole tradition of that. Um, and there are other activists in the Midwest who are international solidarity activists with Palestine um, and also had done trip. They'd gone to, on trips uh, to Gaza. Um, there are people who had gone on trips to Colombia, met with people who are affiliated or had ties to the FARC and were targeted with grand jury subpoenas back in 2010. Uh, these are anti-war activists who organized against the Republican National Convention and they engaged in resistance. Um, they were never jailed or held in contempt. That was a really widespread and huge fishing expedition that was ongoing under Barack Obama and his Justice Department, but it's like this, She's in jail, um, and, you know, to me, the thing that really stands out, I've, I've had this irony in my head, which is when Chelsea Manning first became a political prisoner and a target of prosecution, she was speaking out. She uh, blew the whistle. She exposed these war crimes, and the government was using her words against her. They were going through chat logs and twisting the things she said. And they were manipulating statements or remarks she had made to her superior officers to show that she was a traitor or that she had somehow aided al-Qaeda terrorists. And now she is being punished because she won't speak out. She's being punished because she won't talk, and very rightly so, because every time that she's said anything about what she's done in the past eight years, she has faced cruel and inhuman treatment. No, exactly, exactly. Um, and I think it's like really, really important for, I mean, there's like a media blackout on this. There really is. Um, it's, it's disgusting. Uh, and so please like be as loud as possible about what's happening with Chelsea Manning. Cause literally like, just, I, I haven't seen anything. Have you, I haven't seen a lot either. And I, and I haven't seen, like you're saying the people who claim to care about press freedom under Donald Trump's administration have not been pounding the table over this. They just have not gotten worked up, even though let's be clear here in the last couple of minutes of our show that the one thing that they are doing is continuing an investigation that the Obama Justice Department already acknowledged posed a considerable threat to the First Amendment. And it's why they largely had abandoned it. Uh, we heard of something called the New York Times problem. I don't know if you remember this, Rania, where it was acknowledged that they could not bring a case against WikiLeaks like Julia Assange 
editor-in-chief and anybody else who worked on the publications, even though they desperately wanted to because they were embarrassed and they were exposed for being involved in criminal conduct or being responsible for brutal war crimes, they themselves acknowledged that if they did anything, then the Washington Post and New York Times would be exposed to a potential prosecution. So they backed away. But now Donald Trump thinks that they can do some kind of an investigation and come up with charges against Assange and others. Um, again, because they, they're not ready to let this go. There are people, careerists, who worked in the State Department with Hillary Clinton and other parts of the government, probably people at the CIA, that don't want to let this go. So they want to get a case. And they're now they're targeting news gathering, Rania. Basically, they're saying that yes. they're going to go after the way in which WikiLeaks was able to get this information. But to me, that's hugely dangerous. They want to say that they what they want is Chelsea Manning to contradict her statements in a court-martial about whether Julian Assange asked for certain documents or not. You know, they want to say that Julian Assange solicited leaks and that is a criminal act. And that's hugely hugely detrimental to not just our press freedom in the United States, but global press freedom, because what they're basically doing is criminalizing this transaction, which is if I am talking to somebody within an agency and they're a possible whistleblower and I hear them complain about something, let's take the FAA, let's go full circle. Let's say somebody is working at the FAA and comes to me and says, I can really tell you, this is how they've been abusing power this is how they've been covering for Boeing. They knew that Boeing was going to kill people. This is what was being done. And I say, well, uh, you give me good examples, but do you have evidence? Is there any sort of documents you have? If you have something, if you're able to provide me with these documents, then we could release this, and I really think we have a story here. Did I just commit a crime? Because that's what Donald Trump's Justice Department is saying, that by me asking that person, that source, if they have documents that I've now committed a crime. That's fucking crazy. Like this is such a huge danger to press freedom. And the fact that like these journalists who only care about Jim Acosta, but don't care about Chelsea Manning, don't get that is just stunning. And, like, and she's taking a, a huge risk. Mm -hmm. The last thing I'll say is she's taking a huge risk. I, uh, John Kiriakou, put it best because I spoke to him and got uh, something, uh, a reaction to her entering jail. And, and he's a, a whistleblower who did time in prison for 30 months. And he says, I have PTSD. He couldn't imagine what Chelsea Manning is going through having to re-enter a jail cell after all <laughs> that she experienced during her time incarcerated. I mean, and it, it was far more traumatizing, like at least a hundred times, if not more traumatizing than what John experienced more more traumatizing than what most of these people who have been prosecuted have experienced and yet she's willing to go back to jail i mean american prisons are like fascistic spaces um where like everything you do is controlled it's very abusive it's like you're just in a situation where you're likely going to eventually get beat up and bullied especially if you're someone like chelsea manning who's transgender right. um and it's a huge like that's i mean She's got, like, Chelsea Manning has a target on her back. And they um, can coerce her. They can mm -hmm. coerce her. They can deny mental health treatment or just general health care to her and say, we won't give this to you unless you testify. Or even medication. Yeah. Like, she's dependent. I mean, she's, as transgender people are typically dependent on hormones. Yes. Um, and so they can, yeah, they can absolutely coerce her by denying her medicine. And you won't even know about it because you're not on the inside. They can cut off her communication. Like, there's so much they can do. I mean, I, like, that's why I'm saying, like, the bravery and courage Chelsea Manning is demonstrating, like, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't go back to prison. I wouldn't go to prison in the first place. Like, I don't have that kind of... <laughs> I would, like, flee the U. I would have fled the U.S. Give, I would have give, run away. Give it all up or just disappear. No, no, I would, I would, I would leave the country. I'm not joking. Like, yeah. sometimes when I watch, like, movies or TV shows that have anything to do with people going to prison, it makes me not never want to go back to the U.S. It's a fucking scary place, like, when it seems like you can go to jail for almost anything. But my point is, is, like, people really need to be loud about this. I agree. Well, we'll keep on this. Um, there's a lot we don't know about it because it's a 
entirely secretive process and it could be 40 years before we really even find out what the government is doing and who they're hauling before to question and all sorts of issues that are actually of public importance uh, mm-hmm. but we'll have to stop here and just thank everyone for listening to our show um, and again thank you to our patrons all 209 of you we could not do this show without you so we thank you for your monthly support yeah thank you guys we'll be back next week